0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now. Here's some Half-Assed History. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more Half-Assed History. This week on the agenda, we're going to continue our journey through the history of clocks. So, uh, I mean, if this is the first episode you've listened to of Half-Assed History, welcome. It's great to have you. This shouldn't be the first episode. (laughs) It's got part two in the name. I've said this before. You shouldn't have started here. Make sure you go back and listen to last week's episode where we covered off things like sundials, water clocks, mechanical clocks, Spring-based clocks, pendulums, pocket watches—all that sort of stuff—we got across that and that in the last episode, and uh, might reference some of that in this one. So it's not going to make a lot of sense if you uh, if you you know if you're joining us here. But uh, very, very interesting uh, stuff—the the history of timekeeping. It really is indeed where we've explored what it meant to ask someone, what's the time, what kind of answers they could give you depending on where you are in history, whether it's a vague estimation of what hour it is with a sundial down to, you know, the the accuracy of a portable handheld device that can give you the exact time to the second, losing only, you know, a minute or two uh, in the day. Quite an astonishing development technology. And of course, during today's episode, that technology is only going to develop even further as we get stuck in uh, to, well, as we get, as we get closer and closer to to the modern era and to the to the 21st century with its atomic clocks, here we're going to get across marine chronometers. Talk about John Harrison. Uh, we're going to talk about the development of time zones. Talk about wristwatches and how they be- how they became uh, you know one of the default timepieces. And of course, then get all the way through to quartz and atomic clocks and uh, how they've influenced the the development of uh, of time timekeeping timepieces uh, to this very day. So. Uh, Let's get to it. Let's get underway and get stuck in with, well, what is actually going to be a secret piece of naval history, because we're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to the early 18th century with the longitude problem. Navigation at sea is a very tricky business. While sailing north or south is is, is easy enough, you know, by well, figuring out how, how far north or how far south you are, you can do that by just looking at the sun at noon with a sextant or you can look at the north star at night if you're in the northern hemisphere you can use that to figure out your latitude how far north or south you are that's pretty easy however sailing east or west was always a very difficult and a very dangerous thing to do because of how hard it was to to accurately navigate and accurately chart any kind of course that travelled from east to west, because it was, it was so difficult to calculate your longitude. Trying to figure out your longitude while in the open ocean, away from the side of land, it was more or less impossible to do accurately. Often, sailors would have to rely on dead reckoning, which is basically a fancy way of saying having a bit of a guess, right? However, the breakthrough came, at least in a, on, a, on a theoretical level, when people realised that longitude can be measured in time as well as in distance. Every hour, this is a little complicated, but, but but bear with me here because you will understand this if uh, if you can get your head around it here. Every hour, the sun moves 15 degrees of longitude around the sky. That's not a difficult calculation. The, the We've divided the earth up into 360 degrees of longitude, right? And no matter where you are, no matter how far north or how far south you are, right – those fifteen degrees is how far it takes for the sun to move one twenty fourth of its way around the around the well. I mean, obviously the rotate. Obviously, we're moving around the sun. That's not what I'm saying. But th- you know, one 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 twenty fourth of the way across the sky um, is fifteen degrees of uh, fifteen degrees of, of longitude. So this means that there is an equivalence between time. And distance, not absolute distance, because the distance of a uh, of an uh, of a degree is is, is is depends on how close you are to the equator, but it does mean that every hour the sun moves fifteen degrees, right? So this means that if you know the time in a certain place and you compare that time to the time that you are in at the moment, you can calculate how far east or west you are because time is equal to distance when it comes to longitude. This may sound very confusing. I'll give you an example that may clear it up, right? Let's say you're in London. You're in London, you get your watch and you set your watch, right, to London time. You then leave London and you travel to an unknown location. You don't know where you are and you have to figure out how far east or how far west you've traveled, right? So you wait until noon, you wait until the sun is directly above you. Now, I'm not talking about time zones here. I'm not talking about it being, you know, a a certain time zone on Earth. I'm talking about your personal noon at that point when the sun is directly above you to the minute, right, we're talking about here. Let's say you do that. You're standing somewhere, you wait until the sun is directly above you, and you look at the watch that you have that has the accurate time from London. And let's say it it says 3 p.m. London time, right? This means that at 3 p.m. in London, it's noon where you are which means that you are three hours, right, west of London, three hours, or 45 degrees. So you now know that you are 45 degrees west of London, and you can calculate what that means in terms of distance by then calculating your latitude to figure out how far north or south you are to find out how long a degree is. And given that calculating latitude is as simple as observing the noonday sun with a sextant, you now know your position, you now know how far you've travelled, and you now know how far you've got to go. So, what was the problem? What was the problem? I mean, if, if, if it's as simple as just a couple of calculations, why was it so hard to calculate your longitude while at sea? The problem was, you had to have an accurate timepiece. And you had to have an accurate timepiece that kept accurate time on a ship, and no clock invented so far could keep accurate enough time to calculate longitude. Pendulum clocks, useless on a ship. The pitch and the roll of the, wave, the, the, the waves, the way that a, a ship moves around the ocean will, will just stuff up a, pen, a, a pendulum's accuracy because it has to swing at a constant rate. And of course, you can't go back to hourglasses or water clocks. You can't nail a sundial to the side of the ship and hope that it's going to keep accurate time. There's no way that you can have a clock that is, is, that is accurate enough based on the technology that existed at the time. So, let me introduce you to a bloke named John Harrison, who spent his entire life trying to solve the problem of longitude. Harrison's story was actually a topic suggestion in its own right, sent in by alert listener Dave McConnon. Thanks so much, Dave. I'm so glad that I finally got to include Harrison's story in an episode here. Harrison was a self-educated clockmaker and carpenter, and he spent decades and decades working on what became known as the marine chronometer. In 1707, uh, four British warships were sunk off the Isles of Scilly after a series of navigational errors uh, uh, in conjunction with bad weather ended up causing them to wreck themselves against the rocks around the islands. Now, this was primarily... These navigation errors were primarily due to the fact that these ships weren't able to accurately calculate their longitude, and they this naval disaster brought around brought about a huge loss of life. Thousands and thousands of sailors died after the after this uh, after this disaster, and so in 1714, in in response to this, the British Parliament put up a bounty of twenty thousand pounds, over three million pounds in today's money, to anyone who could solve the problem of longitude. And make sure that navigational errors like this would never happen again. Now, our mate Harrison, he decides that he's the man for the job. And so he puts on his thinking cap and he got to work. He spent five years developing his first clock, a clock that he called H1, um, doing uh, everything that he could to to everything that he could think of even um, to uh, to make it resistant to temperature variations, uh, sea spray and salt, humidity and, of course, the constantly moving Uh, ship which was playing havoc with uh, the the movement of of, of, you know pendulum based clocks that sort of thing now his first clock it didn't claim the prize nor did his second nor his third each time he was offered grants to continue to improve his ideas because the board of longitude was was very interested in uh, you know the people who were overseeing the prize money they were very interested in stuff that he was working on but uh, none of the three came close to solving the problem altogether they just weren't accurate enough, and uh, to claim the 20 grand, you had to have a ship sail across the Atlantic to within a, a half a degree of accuracy, and his ships weren't even staying accurate on a voyage to Portugal, where they could accurately measure um, the, uh, the longitude based on based on how far away they were from the coastline um and, and and his 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 clocks didn't even you know didn't, didn't even keep up with that so after having built these three clocks and never having had a breakthrough harrison he spent 30 years on this by the way he spent 30 years trying to crack, crack this case but he was missing a few key pieces of the puzzle and this is what held him back in fairness what he didn't you know what he didn't understand had to do with springs that control the, the springs that controlled the balance wheels weren't isochronous i don't know what that means i read the explanation of about seven times i still don't get it but and look in fact this concept right whatever it is it wasn't fully understood for another 200 years, so it's no fault of old Harrison there. He was doing his best. But undaunted, he began work on H4, his fourth clock, this time miniaturised, after new developments in metalworking allowed him to make it as small as a, as a large ish pocket watch. It was about 13 centimetres across. And after another six years of work in 1761, Harrison's H4 was sent off on a journey from Portsmouth in Britain to Kingston, Jamaica. And the ship was able to able to navigate there using this uh, using this marine chronometer H four to within one nautical mile. The longitude act you remember had called for accuracy to within half a degree, and Harrison's watch was within two percent of a degree. Never mind half. Over the eighty one day voyage, this remarkable timepiece lost three and a half minutes. That's around 3 or 4 seconds a day. However, believe it or not, the British Parliament wouldn't give Harrison his money. The people in charge, the uh, the, the Board of Longitude, they said it could have just been luck and that if the watch took 6 years to develop, it probably wasn't well, it wasn't th- you know, it wasn't it wasn't worth the trouble if it was going to be so much hassle to put one together. So, Harrison sent off the watch again to prove that it was worth it. Thank you very much. It was not a fluke and the second time the watch was a total of 39 seconds off rather than three and a half minutes. And still the board wasn't having any of it. Unbelievable. They argued, right? They argued, but get a load of this. They argued the watch was making errors in both directions, gaining and losing time, which then cancelled each other out. And it wasn't a reliable timepiece. And Harrison by now, as you can understand, he'd had a gutful. He'd had enough. He'd, He'd already built H5, the next iteration, and he wanted his bloody money. Excuse me, thank you very much, right? want that £20,000. And so he went above the heads of the board and the parliament and went straight to King George III himself. (laughs) And when the king found out about what had been going on, he himself tested H5 over a few months and found that it lost a third of a second each day. Now, this might sound like a lot by today's standards, but back then, it was the difference between arriving safely at your transatlantic destination or dying a horrible death lost at sea. Remember that a tiny unnoticed error in navigation uh, compounds itself the longer it goes on. So this watch was once again an absolute game changer. King George was so impressed by this invention that he told Harrison to, to petition Parliament directly for the reward. But Harrison, who was you know, 80 years old by now. Unfortunately, I'm very sorry to say he never received the full amount. No one did. No one did. The Parliament never paid out the Board of longitude, never paid out the full 20,000 pounds to anyone. I mean, look, Harrison did all right for himself. Between the grants and smaller payments, he'd earned about 15,000 pounds or so. And he did receive one final payment from Parliament there that bumped up his, his total the total amount he'd earned from uh, from this invention to £23,000 or, or, or just slightly more than that. So, you know, while it wasn't quite the £20,000 cash grab that he'd hoped, hoped to make, you know, nice and quickly there, remember that £23,000 was across his entire life. So while it was, you know, a decent amount of money, still it wasn't exactly what he'd been hoping for there. Anyway. Captain James Cook went on to use copies of Harrison's watches while on his voyages, and another copy was used uh, in the possession of Captain Bly of uh, Mutiny of the Bounty fame. See episodes 46 and 47 for more details there. And Harrison himself, he died in 1776, three years after petitioning the king. But his work forever changed the way that we took to sea as a species. In the years after his death, by the beginning of the 19th century, the idea of going to sea without a marine chronometer was insanity. Harrison's pioneering technology made sea travel faster, more efficient, and most importantly, safer than ever before, as navigators could steer their ships accurately and confidently to the destination without getting lost and, and running out of supplies in in the middle of the uh, in the middle of the open ocean. So while the marine chronometer was an essential timepiece on the sea, back on land it was still the pendulum clock that was far and away the most popular way to keep accurate time. And as we move into the 19th century, however, a new problem emerges. All these clocks wherever they are, they're keeping good time, but they're all keeping time independently of one another. Now that will normally wouldn't be a problem as, you know, even if you were to travel between two places with different times, the time that it would take to travel would make the difference largely negligible, and then you could you know, update your pocket watch when you arrive wherever you get to. But this all changed, however, with the development of railroads and the necessity of accurately scheduled trains. Because before this, it didn't matter if clocks in one city were 15 or 20 minutes ahead of another city, but when you've got a railway connecting them, it becomes impossible to timetable trains properly if every city has its own, you know local time, which is very much the case. I mean you might you might think it sounds pretty unusual these days, but um, you know th- there was a 12 minute difference between the time in London and Birmingham. There was a 40 minute difference between the time in Chicago and St. Louis. They, they, all of these differences were based on uh, on, on, on differences in solar and noon in, in any given place on Earth. So clearly the world needed a better system and the precursor to modern time zones emerged with railway time. In Britain in 1840, railway companies began to adopt standardized time uh, that ignored solar noon. It was it was called Greenwich Mean Time. It was named after the location of the Royal Observatory where the uh, prime meridian 0 degrees east and west runs through. But it was also referred to to as railway time. Now, standardised time, it took a long time to catch on. In fact, until 1880, many British clocks had two minute hands, one for GMT and one for local time. And many towns and cities, they stuck to their local time. Imagine this. Imagine having millions of time zones within individual countries, one for each city. I mean, even today, Russia has 11, which is ridiculous. It's It's not even funny. Um, but imagine what it would have been like back then, with all these different towns. You know, having you know twelve minute differences when you when you go up the road, just because one town is a little bit further east or west than the one you've come uh, you've come from. The very first place to officially adopt a standardized time zone throughout its entire territory was, I am reluctant to admit, the Kiwis. It was New Zealand uh, who were, I suppose, you could say. Ahead of the time? No, they weren't ahead of the time, were they? They were exactly on time. I suppose that doesn't work at all. Anyway, yes. In in, in 1868, the British colony of New Zealand it became the first region to standardize time within its own borders, uh, and it wasn't long before other places started to follow suit. Britain did away with the two minute hands in um, in 1880, standardizing GMT. And by now, the discussion about worldwide time zones was flourishing. The first person to suggest them was an Italian mathematician whose name was Quirico Filippanti in 1858. And then in uh, 1879, a Scottish-Canadian inventor, Sir Sanford Fleming, put forward a system of universal time zones. And by the time we got to the 20th century, more or less every single nation on Earth used GMT, or as, it, or as it's known these days, Coordinated Universal Time, or UTC, to assign itself it's a time zone. And, uh, you know, included in, <laughs> included in that list of nations... Was Australia, which has the ridiculous Australian Central Standard Time, which is half an hour beside, behind Eastern. Ridiculous in Adelaide. You know, if it's nine o'clock in uh, if it's if it's nine o'clock in in Melbourne, it's eight thirty in Adelaide. I don't think. I mean, but, but then again, that's not as ridiculous as Nepal, because Nepal time is five hours and forty five minutes ahead of UTC. I mean. Come on, Nepal, mate. How specific do you need? It's 15 minutes. No one's going to know. What are you you doing? What are you doing, mate? Anyway, it's called UTC, by the way, because English speakers wanted to initialize it as CUT, Coordinated Universal Time, where French speakers wanted to initialize it as TUC, because that's the order it would be in France. (laughs) So the compromise was, of course, to call it UTC, which left everyone unhappy, just like every good compromise should. So... Everyone's got a time zone, everyone's got a pendulum clock to stick to it, what more do you need? Well, as is so often the case, the technology with timekeeping once again benefited from humans engaging in one of their favourite pastimes, trying to kill each other as efficiently as possible. I mentioned before that the pocket watch was an accessory for men, while the wristwatch was a woman's accessory. If you were a bloke, you know, 200 odd years ago, you you just wouldn't wear a wristwatch because it was considered a very feminine piece of jewellery. But this changed uh, towards the end of the 19th century as the need for military personnel to simultaneously and very accurately coordinate manoeuvres, right? Um, and this led to the development of highly miniaturised watches. The first wrist watches, actually, they were just pocket watches with leather straps, right? Which is pretty hilarious—just strapping an enormous watch on, on, onto the side of your hand there. Um, but eventually, as technology developed, they became smaller and smaller uh, until they looked like more or less what they look like today, you know, a, a largish coin-sized clock face with, a, with straps that would hold it onto your wrist. Now, wristwatches made it easier for military personnel to synchronize their movements rather than the you old, know, you know, attack at dawn. Uh, you could be much more precise, much more surgical. And this was most notably put to use during the First World War, when artillery barrages uh, that needed accurate timing, you know, to the minute, to the second even— uh, between people at great distances. And it also, of course shifted the design of the watches themselves as they were made to be hard wearing and tough, suited for you know, life in the trenches and not so much just the ornamental jewelry that they that they'd been before. And after the war, soldiers that returned home, right, they were wearing. These fancy new watches, they were wearing the, the, this this accessory that had up until this point been almost exclusively a feminine accessory and all these blokes returning home with these brand new watches on their wrists, right? And the fashion completely changed. It ended the feminine association of the, rich, of the wristwatch and it spelt the death, interestingly, of the pocket watch. We say that, you know, video killed the radio star. Well, wristwatches killed the pocket watch as well because men abandoned the pocket watch for wristwatches instead. Further afield, however, uh, an exciting new technology had caught on. The brand new electric clock had begun to obsolete the pendulum clock. Um, uh, This was, again, in the early 20th century. It had been worked on since 1815 and had been patented by the Scottish inventor Alexander Bain in 1840. But uh, it it wasn't until the widespread uh, use and adoption of of electricity that electric clocks began to really catch on and start to replace uh, the pendulum clock. Uh, you know, around about the 1930s. And we're starting to get into the realm of confusing and complicated science here, although some of the advantages of the electric clock are very obvious, you know, even if you don't understand exactly the in and out, the way they work, that sort of thing. They don't need to be wound up. They can be made to ex- be extremely accurate over a much longer period of time. And with the global advent of electricity, they're broadly accessible. More, More importantly, however, most importantly, they no longer use an escapement for accuracy. Instead, they use the utility frequency of alternating current to drive a synchronous motor, and yeah, nah, I don't understand it either. But look, they're heaps accurate. They're just heaps accurate, eh? And they can keep the correct time for a long, long time. So by the 1930s, electric clocks had outstripped mechanical uh, pendulum clocks as the most common and, uh, and popular method of timekeeping. But their time at the top was very limited. Let me tell you this. It wasn't long until they themselves, electric clocks, went the way of the pendulum clock, of the water clock, all these ones before them. And were rendered, you know, into the into the world of the antique and, and, and the curio, because around the time that the electric clocks were taking over the world of timekeeping, scientists were already working on the next big thing, the quartz clock. The very first quartz clock was built in 1927 by Warren Marison and J.W. Horton, and they work by. Uh, <laughs> Look, I'll do I'll do my best here, but I'm I'm well and truly out of my depth. I have to tell you that. So so quartz. I mean, every, you, you all know what quartz is. It's a white rock. You find gold in it sometimes. It is what is called a piezoelectric material, which means that it picks up an electric charge when it's bent, basically, and the reverse is also true. When it's subjected to an electrical charge, it bends. So. If you whack a specially prepared bit of quartz into an electric circuit, you end up with what's called a crystal oscillator, something that can generate an extremely precise frequency, something that will give out a frequency that is, you know, again, very, very accurate, very, very precise, more precise than a pendulum, more precise than an electric current. Quartz clocks from the outset would be accurate to a single second in four Months, so we're talking about a degree of accuracy that is, and or several potentially several orders of magnitude more precise than a pendulum clock. They they were for a long time, you know the the absolute they were as as accurate as it was possible to be with timekeeping, and uh, as a result they were used more or less just in laboratories really, where uh, you know supremely accurate timekeeping was needed. But of course it was just a matter of time before they made it big on the commercial market as well, and where they made it big was of course in watches. I talked about watches before. While electric clocks had overtaken mechanical clocks uh, uh, you know as 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 the main time keep uh, timekeeping timepieces in people's houses, right? Before the advent of quartz, mechanical watches were the norm. There were electric watches as well, there were electrical uh, electrically charged watches that made a bit of an appearance in the 50s, but broadly speaking, mechanical watches were the way to go before quartz watches came along. But then in the late uh, in the late 1960s, 1968, 1969, a Japanese company named Psycho unveiled a brand new quartz watch. It was cheap to make and it was an order of magnitude more accurate than a mechanical one. Using a small battery that powered a crystal oscillator, this watch essentially obsoleted mechanical watches, which of course required winding and maintenance and repair, and that's not to mention that quartz watches were relatively inexpensive and now widely available. The old watchmaking industry went into a tailspin throughout the 1970s and 1980s uh, with all the famous Swiss watchmaking companies being blasted into oblivion by Japanese companies that were at the forefront of this new technology. Before this, right, Switzerland had a near monopoly on the manufacture of watches and, and the nation's reputation for high quality timepieces, it still carries through to this day. But over a thousand Swiss watchmaking companies were forced out of business. Uh, in the wake of what they called the Quartz Crisis. That's what it's called in Switzerland, the Quartz Crisis. Around the, west, the rest of the world, it's known as the Quartz Revolution, which probably goes some way in, in showing you, you know, what it meant to different parts of the world there. And uh, so, uh, with all these watchmakers out of business, uh, the, 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 the country's economy was uh, was under siege. And as a result, right, they uh, the Swiss, Swiss watchmakers, they came together, they rallied, and they created a new company, Swatch. You've probably heard of it. Uh, that looked to contest companies like Psycho, Casio, and Citizen out of Japan, uh, the, the, you know, the people who are making squillions of billions and, and off of these new quartz watches. But nonetheless, the times changed, and even with uh, Switzerland attempting to adapt to these new times, by the 1980s, quartz clocks and quartz watches were now the default timepieces for everyone worldwide. Mechanical clocks became antiques, and mechanical watches became expensive collector's items. Quartz clocks are cheap, They're accurate and they readily fulfilled the needs of the everyday person, both then and now, whether powering a a digital or an analog face, quartz timepieces, uh, they dominated the market. And today, most, most watches and clocks that you see are quartz, right? However, we're not quite finished, as I'm sure you know. There is one last type of clock, the most accurate clock ever made that puts quartz clocks to shame. A quartz clock might lose a couple of seconds a year. It's not going to make you late for work, but that is nowhere near accurate enough for international transport networks, for GPS networks, or synchronising data across the internet. This latest type of clock, rather than being accurate to a few seconds over a year like a quartz clock, is accurate instead to a few seconds over trillions of years. I'm talking, of course, about the atomic clock. And if you thought quartz clocks were complicated, have a listen to how Wikipedia explains an atomic clock. An atomic clock is a clock device that uses a hyperfine transition frequency in the microwave or electron transition frequency in the optical or ultraviolet region of the electromagnetic spectrum of atoms as a frequency standard for its timekeeping element. Okay, nerd, whatever. The point is, these things are bloody accurate. They are so bloody accurate, it beggars belief. Clocks known as radio clocks have the time broadcast to them via, well, radio, uh, to keep them in sync. And this time is kept by atomic clocks. So even if atomic clocks aren't, but you can buy atomic clocks, they are largely useless when compared to a quartz clock. You know, again, you're not going to notice the difference unless you have to set an alarm for three trillion years and need it to be accurate to the second. Um, But broadly speaking, you don't see a lot of atomic clocks day to day, right? Radio clocks are powered by atomic clocks. They get that they're synchronized with them, of course. Um, and, and, and not to mention any more or less any device that is connected to the internet will have its, uh, its clock automatically synchronized with these at- atomic clocks as well. But broadly speaking on a day-to-day, uh, day-to-day level, most people don't need clocks to be this accurate. We wouldn't notice a few seconds a year, let alone a, uh, you know, a, a few seconds every, <laughs> every couple of trillion years. We just don't need this level of granularity. We don't need this level of precision in our, in our everyday, in, in, in our, in our day-to-day lives. Or do we? Because in the rigorous world of science, right, this extra accuracy is essential as technology develops further and further. You know, the accuracy of an atomic clock would largely go unnoticed by everyday people. It's all on a level that doesn't affect most of our day-to-day lives as we, you know, go to work or, you know, catch the train. But I'll tell you this, even if you don't need an atomic clock to get you out of bed in time, you would bloody well notice if we didn't have them. Having clocks this accurate means that we have GPS, GPS satellites are powered by atomic clocks, and they also mean that we have the internet, which has to keep countless devices concurrently synchronised to the same standard of time, right? And it is so essential that we keep these clocks minutely accurate, that we have a thing called leap seconds. The Earth's rotation is not as regular as you might think, and on on top of that, it's, it's slowing down. So every now and again, 37 times since 1972, an extra second is inserted to UTC at midnight on either the 31st of December or the 30th of June. We have come a long, long way since stone circles and sundials, since since water clocks and escapements. We've come all the way through to carefully measuring cesium atoms as they do... Something I, I don't really know what they're doing, but we're me- you can you can be sure that we're measuring we're measuring it very accurately indeed. The bottom line is this: the bottom line is this. Every single time you look at your phone to check the time, you are connecting yourself with the end product of four thousand years of technological advancement. Four thousand years that have culminated in you glancing at your phone to see if you can get away with five more minutes in bed. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the history of the humble clock, my friends. And I hope you've enjoyed I learned so much researching this episode and, and the one before it. I, I learned just an, an enormous amount about all... I never thought I'd understand why, you know, what the longitude problem was or how it worked. But once you think through it, it's it's incredible. And it's incredible to think that, you know, something is as simple as checking the time is is weighed down by four millennia of of, of technological development of, and, of, and of history. It, it really is absolutely fascinating. Anyway, thanks for sticking through it all the way to the end here. Um, it's been uh, it's been great to have your company and I do hope you'll join me next week as we get stuck into a new topic. Um, and as to what that new topic is, well, why don't you tell me? Go on to halfhushistory.net and you can send through your suggestions. There's a contact form there. Or of course, you can join the Discord, bit.ly slash There's a Discord uh, channel set up for the discussion of uh, episodes for the suggestions of new topics, anything you like, you go there and chat about stuff like that. So I do suggest you join up. Um, but on halfasshistory.net, of course, you'll find links to the shop. You can go and buy uh, history merch there. Free worldwide shipping, or you can sign up and be a Patreon supporter as well. Links links included there as well. Um, and if you don't want to subscribe on Patreon, that's totally understandable. You can instead subscribe on Spotify or iTunes, free of charge. And if you wouldn't mind leaving me a review on iTunes as well, certainly. Appar- apparently. The algorithmic benef- benefit is is impossible to overstate. So, so please get across that if you uh, if you've got a spare couple of minutes. Anyway, that is that. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing the show if you're doing that with your friends and your enemies and the people you feel ambivalent about. I, I appreciate everyone who is uh, getting the good word out. And uh, I will see you back in next week for more half hour history. Again, send in those topics if you've got something that uh, you think might be interesting. I've got I've got a huge long list, but hey, no harm in adding to it. So, uh, looking forward to having you company then. Anyway. I'm going to close the show, of course, with a question posed on Reddit. This question asked by Oh, jeez, I should have had a run up for this one. This question, oh mate, posed by Reddit scientist seven four six eight six five six two six c six one seven. How a how how does this person remember their login details? I hate to think what their password is, if that's what. Oh, their password is probably just password, isn't it? With a username like that, you never, oh, gee, never no one's ever going to be able to hack it. Anyway. Seven, four, six, and so on asks, how did the first clockmaker know what time it was? (laughs) Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?